My name is Pastor Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. I know Pastor Brent is normally up here, but it's always an honor when I get to get to share with you and he asks me to be here. And we've been working through the series called Genesis. Pastor Brent's been doing an amazing job over the last few weeks leading us in that. But today, if you've got a Bible, we're in Genesis chapter 11. Just so you know, if you need a Bible and you're here today, we've got some awesome of our members of our red shirt team that are right in the aisles. They've got Bibles. So if you want one, they've got them available. You don't even have to have a conversation with them, all right? Just take it. It's yours. It's our gift to you if you want one. If you've got a phone or whatever, open it up to Genesis chapter 11. Hear the word of the Lord. I'll read it for you today, all right? Starting in verse 1. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. And as the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. And they began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. And they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and will keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower that the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. So come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages and they won't be able to understand each other. And in that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. And that is why the city was called Babel because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages and in this way he scattered them all over the world. So Genesis chapter 11, the title of our message this week, church, is Paradise City. So why don't you turn to a couple people and say hello, welcome to the church, and ask them to take you down to Paradise City, okay? And then we'll dive in. You can sing it if you want. That's allowed. I know it's hard. Any uh, classic rock fans out there? Yes, the Paradise City where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. Fun fact, that song was written about the great city of Los Angeles, and my wife was actually born in Los Angeles. So I can say in good confidence that the girls are pretty in Paradise City, okay? That's like the theme song of my life. So the rest of you can't touch it unless your wife was born in California, then that's awesome too. But uh, Paradise City is what we're talking about, picking up at the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, if you grew up in church, the Tower of Babel is probably a familiar flannel graph story that you spent a lot of time on in Sunday school, okay? If you're newer to church, newer to Bible, newer to the faith, man, that's awesome. We're so glad you're here. You probably don't know what a flannel graph is, and that's probably a good thing, okay? But if you want to Google it and, and figure that out for yourself, that was before the days of technology and videos and lights and all that. We used to just like slap little fanal figures up on a board, and that's how we learned our Bible stories. But it worked. It, it was great. And, and it's also something I think we need to acknowledge with the story of the Tower of Babel that it's a little weird. It's a little funky, okay? Like through the book of Genesis that we've been learning over the last few weeks with Pastor Brent, it's okay for us to acknowledge, especially if this is new material to us, that this is kind of weird, right? Why does, why does God care if someone wants to build a big tower and a big city? And why does he want to confuse their language and make it so they can't understand each other? What's up with that? We're going to get there, okay? But if you're sitting there thinking, that was a little weird what we just read, you're right, it is. But it's going to be good and God's going to work in our lives today. I really believe in a powerful way. And I just wanted to let us know that if last week you were here, we, we were with Pastor Brent and the story of Noah and the ark, another classic Sunday school story, right, and the great flood over the whole earth. And this story 
picks up just a season later, where now is, is kind of follows up the triumphal emergence of mankind off of the ark after the flood, okay? So God had put this little pocket of people, this remnant of people onto this ark, like Pastor Brent talked about last week, and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and it flooded the entire earth. And you got to believe that that was an awful experience to be on that ark, right? That family stuck on there with your brothers and sisters and your mom and dad for 40 days and 40 nights sounds like the worst, right? And a bunch of stank, nasty animals in there with you and it's like raining outside and you're getting seasick. It's like the cruise from Hades, you know? It's like the worst experience ever. But then there's that day, there's that day when the sun breaks through the clouds, right? And the rain stops and the water starts to recede and it's like you can begin to hope again, right? It's so easy to get stuck in the storm and think, man, this is, this is awful. I, I can't imagine life outside of it. But then, then there's hope, right? And don't we love those seasons in our life? Don't we love those seasons where we maybe we went through the ringer, we went through the storm, we went through the flood, we went through the disaster, the sickness, the disease, the famine, whatever it was. But then there's that day when the clouds break and we can feel the warmth of the sun on our face, you know, and we can begin to hope again. We can begin to sort of imagine and picture what life is going to look like on the other side of the storm. Those are the good times in life, aren't they? The storm, not so much, but the, 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 the hope that begins to emerge after. Those are, those are happy days. Now, we kind of lived this out with one of my sons this week, all right? Obviously, in a much smaller scale than a worldwide flood, but basically, one of my sons this week did something that his mom and I decided that he needed to make some recompense for, okay? It was something that we felt like he needed to apologize for, and we were going to make it a, a life lesson and uh, to protect the innocent and to honor him. I'm not going to tell you exactly what he did in our, in our world, not that big of a deal, but to him, this was a huge deal, okay? And we said, no, you're going to have to apologize for this. You're going to have to make this right. And to him, it was the end of his life, okay? Like, it was a total disaster. Like, the thought of having to face what he did and having to face somebody and having to own it and having to apologize for it, like, I'm talking snot and tears everywhere, right? Like, it was just, it was just bad. Like, this, we couldn't have done, we could have tortured him and he would have chosen that over making him apologize, right? It was just, because he was so embarrassed and because he was so ashamed, he just, he just couldn't imagine how this was going to work or how he's going to survive. Like, he, I think he would have chosen death if he would have had the option, right? But as parents, we knew, like, this is what was the best. This is how we had to learn. This was going to be a lesson. And so we pushed him into it. And then when he finally faced his fears, and when he finally faced that person, and he needed to ask for forgiveness, and he apologized, and he received grace, and he received forgiveness. Like, you could literally see it in his eyes, like his entire body, from his head, like, all the way down to his toes. Just that relief and that hope that there's life on the other side of the storm. You know, he's like, I did it. I survived. I thought it was going to kill me. I thought it was the end, but I made it out the, other, out the other side. And I don't know about you, but I've experienced those seasons in my life many times. And I think for Noah and his family coming off the ark, and they're just sort of walking off. Can you imagine like opening that door and walking onto dry land for the first time? In the words of Michael Buble, it's a new day, it's a new dawn, it's a new life, and I'm feeling good, baby. Like, life is good today. On the ark, not so much, but today, life is good. It's all the hope and all the, all the possibility in the world just at their fingertips. And then God meets them right there. And if you skip back a couple chapters in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, and what he says to them, he says, literally, God blessed Noah and his sons 
And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth, right? God just proceeds to say, hey, this earth that I basically hit the reset button on, is it's newly cleansed, it's newly purified, like it's a new beginning. It's another Genesis. That's what Genesis means, right? Beginnings. It's a new opportunity, a second chance. And you guys get to do this. You get to, to, to fill the earth and to, and to populate it and to, and to spread out. And as humans, you get to provide some leadership to the rest of creation. And it's beautiful and it's amazing. And there's a rainbow in the sky. Like you can taste the hope, right? It's an amazing day. And then if you go on to read the rest of the story, chapter 10 gives us a little bit of a historical genealogy of, of the family and the, and the descendants and things like that. And then when we get to chapter 11, it's incredibly it's incredibly interesting because it's not that long after they've come off the ark and after they've gone through this flood and after they've received that promise and that command from God to go into the earth and to fill it, to spread out and to populate it. And if you go back and you read chapter 11, again, verse 1, we just read it a few minutes ago there together. It says, at one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and they used the same words. And as the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and they settled there, all right? If you've got your Bible, I want you to underline, circle, bold, italicize, like doodle around, draw big pointing arrows to the word settled, okay? Because this is the word that the, basically this entire story of the Tower of Babel hinges on right here, okay? These people chose to settle. They stopped and they settled. You ever been there? You ever been in a place in your life where you settled for less than what you knew was the best, right? That you lowered the bar just a little bit. You settled for, you settled for second best. It's never, it's never a high point in our lives when we settle, is it? It just isn't. I mean, and we do it in a ton of different ways. We do it in big ways. We do it in small ways. Like, I know we're, we've already made it to February 2018. Isn't it crazy? 2018 is flying by, baby. It's nuts. But anybody here, like, man enough to admit, woman enough to admit that you've already settled on some of your New Year's resolutions? It happens, doesn't it? We all do it. It's like, man, this year, I'm going to lose weight, baby. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be fit and trim. I want to get back into my wedding dress or my high school jeans. If anybody saves those, I don't know. But it's going to be a new year, a new me. And then it's like, wait, hold up. You got a pizza over there? All right, I'll lose weight tomorrow, okay? Like, I can start tomorrow. Or I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the gym. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to get in better shape this year. It's going to be great. But, oh, season three, Stranger Things just dropped on Netflix, and it's time for me to binge for 24 hours. Come on. Somebody order me a pizza, right? I'm going to be a better husband this year, honey. I'm going to be less selfish. It's going to be the year of, of me focusing on you and, and, and less on me, right? And then she rolls her eyes at you, and you're like, what are you rolling your eyes at me for? Come on, you want to go? You're right, you want to do this right now, right? Like, it just it, it changes so fast, doesn't it? I'm going to be a better dad. I'm going to focus more on my family. Like, I'm going to be a better mom. The words that are going to describe our household this year are going to be like peace and, and harmony, you know, and like it's all going to be like sunshine and flowers, and that lasts for like a day, doesn't it? Parents, you guys know how that goes. Families, you know, like I don't have to tell you, right? I'm going to, I'm going to apply myself more at work this year. I'm going to really go after that promotion that I deserve. I'm just going to, I'm going to give my very best. And then like two days in, it's like, yeah, I forgot what an idiot my boss was. Forget this. I'm not even going to try, right? It's just, it's just not worth it some days. And we can laugh about it, and it's funny when we settle sometimes, but it's not, it's not always humorous, is it? That there's moments and seasons in our life when we settle on our goals, we settle on our dreams, we settle on our morality. And it's not as if we don't know or understand that there's a better option when we settle, is it? It's not as if we don't know what the best option is, that there's a better way out there. But for whatever reason, we choose to, 
We choose to lower the bar. We choose to let ourselves off easy, or so we think. And I think that our, our friends here in Genesis chapter 11, I think that's exactly what's happening for them, and that's exactly what's happening in their life, because immediately after they settled, in verse 2, I want you to see what happens in verse 3, okay? They settled on this plain, and in verse 3, they began saying to each other, hey, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. And in verse 4, they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves, right? Let's build this awesome city for ourselves, and let's build a tower that's going to reach into the sky, and it'll make us famous. And catch this, it'll keep us from being scattered all over the world, all right? Now back it up, because didn't God just say not that long ago that I want them to do what? Scatter all over the whole world? And they're like, no, let's stop right here on this plane, build ourselves a city, and it's going to be an awesome city, Paradise City, where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. We're already home. We don't need to go anywhere else. We'll build a giant tower. Everyone will look at us, and they'll say how awesome we are, and we'll be famous. Like, this is it. This is all we need right here. And if we do this, we won't have to scatter all over the whole world. That sounds like a lot of work. We don't know what's around the next corner. We don't know what's over the next mountain. We don't know if we're ever going to see another plane that's this nice and this beautiful, right? Let's just stay right here. It's easy. It's comfortable. We've already made it. Like, why, why bother going any further? We'll just settle right here. This is good enough for us. It's Paradise City. And what they did was they traded their ultimate reward, their ultimate promise for God. They were ready to trade it right then and there for immediate gratification, Right? Because it was easy. It was tangible. And the same thing happens to us. Because of immediate gratification, so often we're so, we're so prone to settle, aren't we? Here's a, here's a thing that I know is true in my life, and somebody in church I know can understand this, okay? Something I understand to be true about the world and my life is this, okay? Salads and plenty of exercise will pay off for me someday in a big way. You know that? Everybody understands that, right? But you know what pays today? Pizza. Absolutely. 100% pizza pays today, baby. At least that's what we, that's what we tell ourselves, right? And it's, like, it's the immediate gratification. I can't exercise and look like the Hulk tomorrow, but I can eat a pizza today, right? And it's like all those, we, we convince ourselves, man, what's, what's right in front of us is immediate gratification. It's like I can trade a future reward and a greater reward for something that maybe I can settle for what I can get today. I can settle for what pays today. And it's so easy for us as people to see our lives through the lens of only what's, what's right in front of us, only what's happening right in front of us. And, and I find it so interesting, like reading through the story and just trying to put myself in the headspace of these people in Genesis 11, where back then, you know, a, a few millennia ago, really, like when, when man looked to the heavens he really would have just been looking at God, right? Like all you would have really seen back then were maybe some mountaintops and, and the sun, the moon and stars at nighttime, maybe some birds or some dinosaurs flying around up there. But it would have been, it would have been like God's creation, right? And it would have been really easy just to kind of turn your eyes toward heaven and know and understand God and be more in touch with God. But then these guys said, no, let's, let's build a tower that we can look up to. Like we're, we're used to looking up to God, but we're going to build this tower that reaches all the way to the heavens. And then we look up, we're going to be standing in that thing's shadow, right? Something that we did, something that we built, something that makes us powerful, something that makes us famous, something that brings us notoriety, something that makes us look good. And it's so interesting that for those, for those early men in those early cultures, that literally would have obstructed their view of God. And maybe we don't build giant towers, I guess some people do, right? There are big towers out there named after people. But 
Maybe in our lives, there's things that obstruct our view of God, right? In our culture, in our, in our uh, you know, day and age, like we've got more advancements in technology. We've got more potential than ever before, right? I mean, we can, we can create artificial intelligence. Now, we're so smart that we can literally create technology that's quickly becoming smarter than we are. Some people say it's going to take over the world. It's crazy, isn't it? Like, we've got, we've got options like emergency contraception and, and stem cell research and genetic modification and gender reassignment, right? Like, so many options available to us now, things that past cultures would have accepted as concrete and fixed and immovable, like today for us, are liquid and changing so fast because the world is at our fingertips. And we feel like we've conquered it in so many ways, don't we? And it's interesting to me that, you know, some of the most brilliant minds of our age that have been literally blessed by God to have insight into how he's hardwired creation and how he set this whole thing up to work, that some of those most brilliant minds somehow come to the conclusion that I don't need God at all, that there's no place for God in all this. Look, if we can do this by ourselves, then why do we need God? If we can build Paradise City right here on this nice plane, then why, why do we need God. And what, the, what mankind in Genesis chapter 11 did was they started to fall back into that same pattern of decision-making that caused God to need to reset things with a flood in the first place was that, man, we think that we have a better way. We think that we know, we figured something out that maybe God has forgotten or God has, has, has had some oversight. And like we, we think that even though God has, has asked us to do this and God has spoken this over our life and God has promised us this, that maybe we figured out a better way. And the times change, my friends, but the problem of sin does not, does it? The problem of immediate gratification and the temptation to settle for less than the best, that doesn't change one bit. Millennia later, not aside from the saving grace of Jesus Christ that we all have access to, nothing has changed, really, in our hearts and the way that we tend to the way that we tend to approach life. But I love what happens next in verse five of the story because it's a but God moment where God steps in, changes the game with a different idea and a different design. And in verse five of chapter 11, it says, but the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower that the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united. They all speak the same language. After this, if they accomplish this, if they're successful with this, if they build this tower and they make a name for themselves and they come together and they unite around this idea that they have a better way, then nothing they set out to do will ever be impossible for them. So come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. And then they won't be able to understand each other. And in that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. God didn't say, no, I need to go down there because these boneheads couldn't build a tower if they tried, right? They wasn't, God wasn't trying to save them or stop them from building this tower. I don't think he gave two hoots about the tower. But the problem that God saw was this, was this disregard for his plan for their life. Was this, was this just pushing aside of this promise that he'd spoken over them? It was, it was apathy. They were, too, they were too comfortable. They were too comfortable in what they'd settled for. They were missing the bigger picture. They were missing his greater blessing. So God felt the need to step in, to step in to save them from themselves. And so he comes down and he makes it so they can't understand each other. Now everybody's speaking these different languages and it's just mass chaos and mass confusion. And eventually they all just kind of give up and splinter off into these different tribes and different tongues. You know, the beauty and the diversity that we see in the world all around today is really because of this moment right here where God chose to step in. And part of 
a part of his plan to accomplish his purpose. And what do they do because of that? They scatter all over the world, which was the plan in the first place, right? They scatter all over the whole world. Now, today, we've got 195 countries. We've got 6,909 distinct languages that we know of in our world that all stem back to this moment right here. And we got there eventually. There's not really an inhabitable place on this planet any longer that we haven't populated in some measure, right? But it took a little bit of nudging, a little bit of persuasion from God. And so for us, you know, how do we... How do we resist, you know, today in our culture, that temptation to settle for anything less than what God has promised us and what he's spoken over us? How do we resist the temptation to just settle for what is immediate, what, is, what is just seems to be urgent and pressing in front of us? Like, how do we begin to see God's bigger story and God's bigger plan for us around or through or despite of these obstacles, maybe these towers that are obstructing our view of God? And it's really pretty simple. That's what I love about the Bible and what I love about God is at the end of the day, sometimes you can look at the Bible as a whole and be like, oh, it's so complicated. There's, there's so much to understand and so much to learn. And it's, if you really boil it down, it's pretty simple. And I think for us, if we want to fight the temptation to settle in our life, we need to, first off, we need to, we need to do three things. We need to recognize that what God offers is always the best option. Because where we get in trouble is when we think we've figured out a better option or a better way, right? And when we stop and we recognize, no, what God offers is always the best option, it changes the game. For God, the Tower of Babel wasn't the issue. The, the, the building, like, again, I don't think God cared at all. It was the hearts of the people. It was the tower represented a collective turning away from his plan and his design and his promise for their life. He had the best for them. It was all planned out. He knew everything he wanted them to accomplish. He had so much for them that they couldn't even begin to comprehend, and they were settling for less. They were throwing it all away to build this tower, to build this paradise city. Like, that's what brought God down from heaven. That's why God wanted to intervene. And what at first glance can look like God's wrath and God's meddling, like why, again, when you first read that story, why does God confuse their languages? That's kind of, a, kind of a jerk move, right? But here's the thing. God wasn't punishing them at all. I don't think he was angry. I don't think he was acting out of wrath. God wasn't punishing them. He was pushing them into their destiny. He wasn't punishing anybody. He was pushing them into their destiny. Anybody in church ever need a push before? Because Lord knows I have, right? You ever had to give somebody else that you care about a push in the right direction in a moment of need? It's what we do for people that we love, right? We, I do it for my kids all the time. We do it for our kids all the time. You ever sit, sit a, try this someday. Sit, a, sit an apple and a hot fudge sundae down in front of a toddler and try to push him into making the choice of the apple is the way to go, right? And just see, just see where that gets you. It's so hard. We know, we understand that the apple is the better choice, right? But try convincing a toddler to choose the apple over the hot fudge. Every single time, he's going to go for the hot fudge. So as parents, we need to like, push them in the right direction, right? We need to teach them about healthy choices, We've got to make sure hot fudge isn't on the menu every day or that's all that kid's going to eat, right? And I don't think with God and our relationships and how we interact with him and we work in our relationships with him that it's a whole lot different, that God constantly is pushing us in the right direction. There's things that he knows and he sees and promises he's spoken over our life and he's like, no, I promise this is the best. I'm pushing you into your destiny. I know you're scared. I know you're afraid. I know you're hesitant. Maybe you feel like you've got a better way, but there's so much more for you and I don't want you to miss it. God wants 
the absolute best for you, the absolute best for his children, the absolute best for his church, and he hates it. He hates it when we settle for anything less. Not out of anger or not even out of disrespect, but because he knows that there's so much more that we're giving up, that we're trading for what's just immediate and tangible. And for us, I think it just requires a little bit of humility on our part. Let's be honest, it requires a ton of humility on our part, right? To say, you know what, God, maybe I feel like there's a better option over here. Maybe I feel like there's a better way. But if you commanded it, if you instructed it in your word, if you've spoken it over my life, if you promised us that, then I need to trust that what you're offering is the best option. And I need to believe that even if it feels like it's not paying off today, that it's going to pay off someday in ways that I could never hope, imagine, or dream for myself right now. Take some humility. We need, to, we need to recognize that what God offers is always the best option. And then we need to refuse, once we recognize that, we need to refuse to settle for anything less than God's best. And I think this is where our friends in Genesis got tripped up, right? Because God had spoken promise and purpose over their life, and he had an amazing plan, but they were, they were willing to trade it for something less than the best. We've never seen a plane this big or this beautiful. Look how green the grass is. This place is awesome. It's paradise. Like we don't, well, let's build an amazing city right here and we'll do it for ourselves. They didn't want to spread out. They didn't want to populate the earth like God had said because they were afraid of what they didn't know and what they didn't understand. You ever been afraid to walk out the path that you felt like God had set you on because you didn't really know where it was going to lead you? You didn't really know what tomorrow was going to hold. You didn't really know what next year was going to hold. Like maybe for a season it was great and God had called me to something and it was awesome and we were walking together, but then, you know, sorry God, life happens and, and circumstances have gotten in the way and other people have come into my life and I just feel like my priorities are shifting and like this path that once seemed good and seemed just full of promise and, and had so much hope that's now kind of like I'm, I'm taking a detour. I'm taking this little side trail, this rabbit trail for a little bit for a little bit, and, and here's the thing, we, we feel like when we settle that we're actually choosing an easier, we're choosing an easier option and a better option. But what's interesting is that when we refuse to settle is that it actually requires something more from us because you, you would think, you know, in our human thinking that, okay, if I just do what, what God wants and I don't settle for anything less than his best, then my life is going to be perfect and it's going to be easy all the time. And if my life's not perfect, then I must not be following God. And notice oftentimes when we choose to refuse for anything less than God's best, it requires more from us, right? This works in every area of your life. You know, eating healthy requires a lot more work than eating junk food, doesn't it? Can I get a witness in church today? Like for me, I don't have to try to eat junk food. I'm just like a black hole. It's like a vacuum. I just walk by it and I just like absorb it, right? It just happens. Second nature. Eating healthy is a lot more work. Going to the gym is a lot more work than binging Netflix, right? Being a better dad is a lot more work than putting in extra hours at the office. Being a loving, selfless husband is a lot more work than just being a selfish jerk and looking out for myself. Conducting my business with honor and integrity requires a lot more work than just cutting corners and doing what I can to make a quick buck, right? But somehow we convince ourselves that it's, it's easier to settle and it's worth it to settle. And I think what God is asking for us, for his kids, for his church, is that we see beyond the immediate. We see beyond what's urgent and what's right in front of us. We see beyond those things that have been set up in our culture that block our view of God. It's almost like he's asking us to see life through a completely different lens 
I think of like flipping a pair of binoculars around backwards. Anybody else ever done that? You're not supposed to, okay? But you know, like if you're as a kid, you ever did that? Like one end, the way they're designed is to bring one thing far away up close and into focus, but it's a really small, narrow field of vision, right? And you just see and focus on that one thing. But if you flip them around, it's a completely different experience where it zooms everything out and now everything's really far away, but you get a better sense of the bigger picture and what's happening in the landscape surrounding that one object or that one circumstance. And I think that's the way God is asking us, asking his church to see the world, that there's everybody gets stuck on what's right in front of them. Everybody gets stuck on these towers that can block us with God. But he's asking us to see the bigger picture, to take a wider perspective on the way he's created us and what he's spoken over us. He's spoken over his church. We've got to see life through a different lens. We've got to refuse to settle for less than God's best. And I think maybe the last thing that we need to do is that we release the illusion of control in our life. And this is a tough one. This is that, this is that Jesus take the wheel moment, right? Carrie Underwood, she nailed it like so many years ago when she brought that song out. It's the moment when we say, you know, I'm done trying to make a name for myself. I'm done trying to build a tower. I'm done trying to make myself look better, to look stronger, to look more powerful. That God, I want you in my life. I want you to have control in my life. I want you to take the wheel. I want you to run the show. Like that's what we're believing and speaking over our church and the promise we believe God has spoken over our church, part of our code that we are building into the DNA of who we are here at King's Church is that we will be a people who are for king and kingdom, meaning that we surrender our whole lives in total allegiance to King Jesus and the advancement of his kingdom. That we are a people that we don't settle, we surrender, all right? And there is a huge difference because normally surrender means a lack of power, but in the kingdom of God and his economy, surrender is where we unleash God's power in our life. We feel like we need to fight and to have control of our life and to do whatever we can to scrap and fight and, and work our way along and to try, to try to create something for ourselves. And God says, no, just surrender to me. Just give it, just give it to me. Like, let me take the wheel. Let me run the show. Like, you don't have to worry about all this. You don't have to keep striving. You don't have to keep fighting against your environment. You don't have to keep fighting against yourself. We're a people that won't settle. We want to be a people that surrender. We're not settling for anything less than God's best. But we're 100% willing to surrender to him, his direction, his provision, his guidance in our life. You know what the easiest way to surrender, the illusion of control in your life is? You just realize and recognize that you never had it in the first place. Not even a little bit, right? And on a lot of days, we do understand that. Some days we may feel in control, but most days we know we're just barely treading water here, right? And we recognize that and just say we're releasing the illusion of that control in our life to God and understanding it's his plan and his perfect purpose at work. That's what's going to bring us joy. That joy and that contentment, trying to build something for ourselves that we're so desperate for, like that's where we find it in full and total surrender to King Jesus. I want to tell you a story and then I'm done. Is that cool? Can I tell you a story and I'll end with this? It's a story about a goose, all right? There's a there's a Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. Maybe if you're a philosophy fan, you've probably heard of him. But Kierkegaard used to love to tell this story about a goose. And this goose uh, one day landed in a barnyard with some chickens. Okay, and so he, he just began to sort of to live life with these chickens. He began to scratch around in the mud 
and in the dirt and just, you know, pecking for some seeds and looking for a piece of corn here and there, what have you. And, you know, he began to get to know the chickens and he would uh, sleep in the barn with the chickens and he lived with the chickens. And this just became this goose's life, right? And day in and day out and season after season and, and year after year, this goose just sort of immersed himself in life with these chickens. And over the course of time, he just came to believe that he was a chicken. He just kind of forgot all about what it meant to, to be a goose. Until this, uh, till this one day, life went on like this, and then th- there was this one day when, when a flock of geese flew over the barnyard, and they were migrating, they were migrating to their home, and on that day, they began to honk, and they began to call out from up in the sky, up in the heavens, and, and Kierkegaard says that the, that the goose lifted his head that day, and that something stirred within the breast of that goose. And for the first time in a long time, he began to remember some things that he had once forgotten. And he, be, he spread his lazy wings and he began to feel the, the winds of hope and change ruffling over his feathers. And he began to, to beat his old tired wings and he began to gain a little bit of velocity and he was lifting up into the air and he was hearing this call from his fellow geese. But then he stopped and he looked around at the chickens he looked around at what had become comfortable, at what, at what had become familiar. He looked at them scratching around in the dirt, in the mud, and the goose folded back up his wings, and he settled back down and went back to scratching around in the dirt, in the mud. And that's where he stayed. And Kierkegaard says that the goose heard the call to something greater that day, but he settled for something much less. My first question for Kierkegaard is, dude, why'd you pick a goose? Could have been a way cooler bird like an eagle or a hawk or something and it would have worked just as good. You know what I mean? But he chose a goose and it works because so often we are that goose, aren't we? That that's us in our life, that maybe we come to church and man, we feel God moving and we feel God at work and we raise our hands and we begin to feel the winds of hope and change blowing in our life and we begin to sense and realize and recognize that God is calling us to something greater and there's a promise that he has spoken over our life and there's a work that he's doing in us that is greater than anything we could ever eke out on our own and we're just feeling and sensing that call and it's such a powerful moment and then we return home and we leave and we fold our wings back up just like that goose and we go back to what is immediate, what's right in front of us, that's filling our field of vision, what's comfortable, what's familiar, what seems to work just fine and dandy for, for everybody else. But that doesn't have to be our story, church. We're refusing to accept that story for ourselves and for our church. We don't want to be chicken. Be a, be a goose, church. But you never had a pastor tell you that before, right? Everybody's going to go to their Super Bowl parties tonight and be like, yeah, I'm a goose. Yeah, pastor said I'm a goose. I'm mean, like, what kind of crazy crackpot church are you going to? But Bishop T.D. Jakes would say that, man, you were, you were meant to soar, not scratch around in the mud and in the dirt, that there's so much greater that God has called you to that has promised you that he's spoken over your life. And I don't care if you're a multimillionaire, successful executive, or you're just struggling living to paycheck to paycheck every single, every single week, that God has promised his best over you, and you don't have to settle for anything less. 
that there is a divine plan and a divine promise that has been spoken over your life. And he is working to accomplish. And if we've got the humility to surrender to him, to, elite, to release that illusion of control, to recognize that what he's offering is the absolute best and refusing to settle for anything less, that there's amazing things that God wants to unlock in our life, amazing blessing that he wants to pour out. But it takes a conscious decision and a concerted effort on our part to say, God, I'm not going to do this on my own. I'm done trying to, to make this happen on my own. The band's going to lead us in a song in, in just a minute. And I love the lyrics. They go like this. It says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I dare not trust what's standing right in front of me. I dare not trust these things, these towers that could easily obstruct my view of God. I dare not trust what's convenient and what's easy. I dare not settle for anything less but holy trust in Jesus' name. What are you trusting in, church? What are you trusting in today? Because we'll all be tempted to trust in something that is temporary, something that is fleeting, something that is dust and ore and won't matter at all when we're gone. But God is calling us to trust in him, to build our lives on what is eternal, to play the long game, to not settle for just immediate gratification, to believe God's best for our life. Surrender is where we learn to soar. Would you pray with me, church? God, we love you. And today we're believing your best over our lives as your church. And God, I'm speaking against any spirit of, of settling, God, any spirit of apathy, any spirit of just being comfortable and being okay with that. God, would you call us into new territory, God? Would you call us into new horizons, Father? Would you open our eyes to what it is that you want to do in our life? Would you open our eyes as your church and what you want to do in this region, Jesus? And would you just pour out your blessing on the people that have the courage to go after it, God, that have the courage to believe you for your best and your best in their life? God, would you pour out your blessing on them? My heart is for the person that today here, maybe for the first time, is saying, God, I'm done trying to do this on my own. I'm done trying to make it on my own. I'm done trying to make a name for myself and just stay alive and scratch a living out of this. Father, I want you in my life. I want to release the illusion that I've ever had a control of my life over to you. Father, would you do what only you can do in those lives and in those hearts right now in this moment? God, we believe you for the absolute best, and we're not going to settle for anything less. Help us find your power and your purpose in our life through surrender to you, Jesus. And we ask it in your amazing name, the loving name of Jesus. Amen.